Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. I'm Emily Trenum, your host. And this week, we're talking to Leslie Smith. Leslie is the Executive Director of Blight Authority of Memphis, also known as BAM, which is a very important nonprofit in the whole landscape of organizations that are working to redevelop Memphis, Memphis neighborhoods specifically. So welcome, Leslie. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about what Blight is exactly. I'm sure a lot of people think they know, but want to dive down a little bit. But first of all, what's your, tell us what BAM is. I've heard, you know, you've got a very succinct sort of elevator speech about this great job of summing it up. So, uh, so lay that on me. The Blight Authority of Memphis, also known as BAM, is a land bank for the city of Memphis designed to help government and community leaders to transform blighted properties into economic opportunity. Great. So, um, so, you know, this is one of those conversations I might need to ring my jargon bell some <laughs> because it's very technical um and we're we're going to talk about this a little bit more later in the discussion but um a land bank authority um that implies you know a bank sort of the word bank sort of implies that people can make deposits in it so the a land bank authority is an entity where people can you know deposit or park properties, among other things, for future redevelopment. Is that correct? Correct. You've got it. Okay, great. So we'll, and we'll talk, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about how you partner with different nonprofits. Okay. So, because uh, that's a very important um, power that uh, the BAM has. Yeah. So, you know, people, I think people, as I said, people think they know what blight is and probably what was that Supreme court justice that said about pornography? You know, it if you see it, people probably think the same thing about blight, but, um, but what's from BAM's perspective, what is, what's a blighted property? For BAM's, we are looking at vacant tax delinquent properties that have clear abandonment um, associations with that property. There's evidence of overgrowth vegetation, um, weeds. Um, there are deteriorated structures on top of that property. Um, and yeah, that's what we focus on. So it's, it's, uh, our, our, our blighted properties, do they always have a structure on them or sometimes they're vacant? I mean, sometimes the property itself is like a vacant lot. Yeah. So when I refer to property, I'm referring to the actual land. And then there are a lot of cases where you have properties that, you know, doesn't have any grass that are abandoned. They just become sites for just legal dumping and never gets attention to be treated. And then you have properties with structures on top uh, where you have squatters, stolen goods, um, just a lot of stuff in the properties and um, have not been touched for years. So it, it can pertain to both. So I know that when you go into Memphis neighborhoods, you know, sadly, you see properties that are, you know, where the weeds are high and maybe some of the windows are boarded up, but those are um, still occupied. It's, you know, like I said, it's sad that, you know, we live in a city in a country where people have those kinds of living conditions, but we do. So are those, so from BAM's perspective, those, I mean, I guess those might be blighted, small B blight. I mean, but, but, but BAM, from BAM's perspective, um, you focus primarily on abandoned properties or vacant properties, I should say. Uh, unoccupied properties, um, because 
there have been, you know, you could, yes, unoccupied properties based on state law that gave them its powers, um, like the other local land banks in the state of Tennessee. Um, our focus is solely on unoccupied properties. So what are some of, the, I know that blighted properties have, you know, a big impact on a neighborhood and the people that live in the neighborhood. So elaborate on that a little bit. How do, how do blighted properties, um, what are some of the negative impacts on that in a neighborhood? Great question, Emily. If you take the properties that are immediately next to those properties um, and say that they are occupied, there are a lot of um, burdens that that neighbor then inherits from that unoccupied property, whether or not it's investing in pesticides to control the rodents from spilling over into their properties, or if it's just trying to cut and maintain um, overgrowth vegetation, trees that are spilling over into their lot. Um, and that becomes costly over time. And so that, you know, you know, the neighbor then decides whether or not they want to deal with that long term or if they want to see if they can get some assistance from government to do something with that. And a lot of times, in a lot of cases, it just doesn't, you know, go, it doesn't, it doesn't move, the conditions doesn't improve as fast as the patients of that neighbor. So they oftentimes leave. And that's when you start to see the spiral effect or domino effect rather of how properties that are abandoned influence others and you have property values that tank as a result of those. Well, I was going to ask about economic impact. Elaborate on that a little bit on, you know, the effects of the property values on surrounding neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, more of a technical question. I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Well, I know you, you've, I've heard you talk about some research about um, studies that have looked at some of the, you know, the economic impact of the urban area surrounding a blighted property. Okay, great. So property values, you know, from the, uh, the, the likelihood or marketability of that property sell, um, selling is, you know, what contributes to some of the values of how that property is determined. And there are some research um, that has been done to show that whenever you have a blighted property um, where it's just clear um, abandonment signs on that property and that property is not dealt with, it can influence the property values up to 500 feet away from that property, which, you know, we all know, as we just said, there's a domino effect when it comes to abandonment. And so one property that has been, been abandoned for quite a period of time does oftentimes, unfortunately, allow the increase of the property's abandonment. So now you have the growth of property values being impacted by this. And that just leads to less taxes that are being captured on that because whenever you see a lot of vacant and abandoned properties, you see a lot of properties that are not paying their taxes. And that's where city government, county governments get their ability to serve the city and county. So that is the larger economic toll of that vacancy brings. Well, and you sort of alluded to this with the domino effect that, you know, that people, I mean, if you live in a neighborhood that has a lot of blighted properties, I mean, it's depressing. You don't feel safe. And I think, you know, it just, you can have the impression that nobody really cares. I feel like, and I don't know if this has been studied, but you know, maybe a connection between blighted properties and, you know, community engagement because um, for me, if I don't feel good about my neighborhood, it's hard to, it's one thing to get with your neighbors and say, you know, there's some trash down the street that's kind of accumulating in an alley. I live kind of near an alley and trash accumulates. And so some of us get together periodically to clean that up. But otherwise, you know, it's a nice, it's a pretty nice area. And um, I would personally feel like I wouldn't feel if I had a lot of properties in my neighborhood that were like that, I think I would think about leaving and not necessarily motivated to try to, because as you said, it's expensive and it's, there's a lot to it. Um, 
Anyway, I think the psychological impacts of blighter signaling, I'm rambling, but that's, I guess, my reflection on that is that the psychological impacts of blight are pretty significant. I'd have to agree with you with that, Emily. There was um, a meeting that I went to. It was a community meeting in Orange Mountain, and there was a young man um, who's still in high school, um, and he he has this friend that um, comes from a very different world than he does. And his friend always invited him to come and hang out with him at his house. And he always did. It was so clean and he felt really good about himself. But then his friend was always like, well, why don't you ever invite me to come to my house? And then he found himself, you know, kind of thinking like, well, you know, (laughs) it it was not a very good, you know, feeling to just see this young man be ashamed to bring someone not into his own house, but into his own neighborhood because he felt that his friend would see him differently. And, And that is something that, you know, is definitely um, impactful in the psychological effect. And I'm sorry that it happened. Well, well, and, and you're actually using a great example because that's youth. I mean, we have young people growing up in environments that physical environments, they don't necessarily feel good about. And that's, you know, just not a good thing. So let's, sort of turning, well, not completely turning from the problem to the solution yet, but, um, you know, we have a lot of blighted properties in our community. I mean, thousands. And I know that people, I think a common, a common feeling about people to see them, maybe I'm making this up, maybe you're driving from, you know, you live in Germantown, you've got friends in from out of town, you decide to go to Stax Museum, which is a wonderful, a wonderful cultural institution in the South Memphis area. And there's a lot of redevelopment going on in South Memphis, but there's still a lot of blight. So you're driving there and you're seeing all the blighted properties and you and maybe your guests say, why doesn't anyone do anything about these? And um, this is awful. I mean, this looks awful. Why, why isn't someone, why isn't someone doing something about them? And um, you and I both know it's like easier said than done. So just tick off a few. There's a lot of barriers to um, to getting control and ultimately fixing up blighted property. So just tick off a few of those that um, that are the biggest barriers you think. Okay. so. First, you've got um, the dilapidation of houses that are occupied, um, and there's not availability of resources to for home repair to meet the need. And so, oftentimes, more than not, and this is oftentimes why you see people living in in properties that are in such conditions is you know the resources aren't you know knowledgeable or accessible um, in those situations. And then you have properties um, that are owned by companies. Um, where the properties are, you know, whether or not they're being speculated on, they're just waiting for the market to improve. Uh, or then you have properties where, you know, they kind of, you know, neglect the property altogether, uh, but you, you can't get in contact with them because you don't know, you know, LLC is is um, is not tied to a person's name, um, at least even locally. Um, you've got people that own properties a lot of out-of-state investors that own properties in Memphis. I'm not saying that all out-of-state investors are bad property owners, but you do have a lot. It does make things complicated in trying to contact somebody with that. So that's a like contributor that just. And what about when someone dies and leaves? I've heard this story forever. Someone dies, they don't have a will. So the property, you know, gets, um, you know, seven children living different places around the, the country all own a very small portion of this um, $15,000 house in South Memphis, um, that happens as well, right? When they say the money makes the world go around, that is definitely the solution to that. Because in order to be able to acquire something like that, or you have to finance being able to contact those people, track those people down and, and get their signatures and have some attorneys to kind of help with transition. That's an affidavit of airship. And that's in the cases where you... Don't make me ring my bell. <laughs> <laughs> that's in cases where you get lucky. Um, in cases right. where you don't get lucky, that's those are more harder. And it does discourage trying to get something done. And, and I think that's oftentimes what happens. Um, and then you have properties that have um, a lot of um, taxes and liens. 
that exceed the value of the property. And and in and, and one case more recently that I've dealt with, I, I've had to deal with a property where um, the owner is, uh, the property has been condemned. So there's a lien that exceeds the value of what the property is. The land is now worth $5,000, but the lien is $56,000. And the, the interesting case in that situation is where federal government, um, Federal government policy is not allowing him to transfer the property to me because he could potentially use the value of that land, though there's a negative balance due. Um, and so now he's homeless. He, he lives in a tent and we're not able to help them. And he's stuck with the lien. And, he, you know, that's just that's another government restrictive policy that happens in it's on a local and federal level. Well, and that's crazy. I don't think people realize that, um, you know, back taxes can't, even for the purposes of blight er eradication, back uh, taxes, property taxes um, in Tennessee and probably other places can't be waived or forgiven. So that place you're driving around on your way to stacks, you might see a house that's boarded up that obviously needs to be renovated or potentially even demolished. Um, it could have, you know, twenty thousand dollars of back taxes and liens on it, but be worth five thousand. And so nobody's gonna buy that um, because they would be assuming all the back taxes. So that's a huge, that's a huge issue, and you know, conversation for another day. But but let's talk about um, one of the reasons BAM was for, well, let me just say this, first of all, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Leslie Smith, who's the executive director of Blight Authority of Memphis. So we're talking about uh, BAM and its efforts to clean up Blight in our city. So Leslie, BAM was formed you know, several years ago, as you said, and it's um, it's a similar uh, to other organizations that have been formed around the country for the purposes of eradicating blight. And in a lot of places, uh, these new entities, land bank authorities, have been very successful. And one of the reasons is that BAM has superpowers. Um, Maybe it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but my point is that BAM has the ability to do some things that government can't do, you know, traditional city and county government can't do and nonprofits can't do. So talk about a little bit about these special superpowers. So these superpowers allows BAM and other authorities like BAM to have the ability to take on risk as a entity that's exempt from taxation and basically incubate neighborhoods where there's high concentrations of blight and put them back into productive use. And some of the ways that they can do that is by partnering with communities and serving as a holding entity to support cat uh, catalyzing redevelopment of blighted property. Um, another power is the ability to have a level of discernment on who properties are sold to. So, you know, a lot of, you know, government entities are, are, are have to go through the bureaucracy of, you know, having a bid off and selling to the, the best bidder and having it done within a time frame. While that is, you know, a good thing for those county government, those governments, um, BAM has the ability to prioritize end use um, over profitability from that sell. And so, that is one of our ways that we're being accountable to ensuring that the properties that we sell, at least to the best of our ability, are put into um, the best use for the community and don't return back as a blighted property. So what you're saying is the, the, that, you know, if there's, if there's um, you know, vacant and abandoned property out there, the highest bidder is, I mean, some of these properties, there is a more, there is a demand for them. And the highest bidder is not necessarily the best um, person to redevelop it. So let me, let me, I want to talk about, we're going to talk about another jargony thing, quiet title in a minute, but I wanted to back up for a second the, and talk about what you talked about, you know, the partnering with nonprofits, because we talked earlier in the show about what, you know, how we were a land bank. And I think people, you know, people don't always know that if a nonprofit, of course, there's nonprofits in our community that do affordable housing. 
Habitat is one that a lot of people have heard of. And if, I'm going to use them as an example. So if Habitat acquires property that they eventually want to put houses on, people but might not know this. They have to pay property taxes like everybody else. And that can be expensive. They might be strategically acquiring some land that they are going to put houses on in 10 years. But in the meantime, they have to continue to pay property taxes on that. And But they can deposit that land with BAM into this land bank. And then BAM can hold the property without property taxes and then give it back to Habitat. I'm simplifying, obviously. Give it back to Habitat when they're ready to redevelop it. Do I have that right? You have that right. Um, BAM wants to be a resource to support community development from a, a local neighborhood level. And for nonprofits like Habitat for Humanity or CDCs that want to do a land assembly, for affordable housing or, you know, job center creations, um, stabilizing neighborhoods, we want to work with them. So, Les, I want to ask you about a um, one of the superpowers, and I mentioned this a minute ago, um, is has to do with um, getting clear title. We talked earlier about how it's very difficult to get in touch with the owners a lot of times of properties. Um, and in the cases, especially when there's a family, there's a lot of family members that own them. I mean, what you have to do now is, you know, get in touch with every single family member and that often is a barrier, but BAM has some ability to sort of bundle those, package them and sort of clear all of the titles at once. I'm sure I'm not really describing that right because I'm not as much of an expert as you, but, uh, What's that called? And then ex- ex- do a better job of explaining it that I just did. Okay. Yeah. No, you did an excellent job. So, you know, first we have to have uh, interest in those properties. And then we basically have to prove to the courts that we made um, a very exhaustive effort to be able to notify the owner and all owners associated with those properties. And we take all of those, that paperwork um, to the court. And we just, you know, show our proof and the court either determines that there can be still more done, still things done more, or we just need to, he says, okay, well, you've done everything and I will grant you um, clearance. And then we're able to get clear title in those properties in that way. One of the things that makes it a superpower is because an individual can do that, um, but it's more on an individual basis. And that's where it gets costly. The cost are what's the burden. So, you know, for doing it one at a time, that's going to court for one, you know, one case, while as BAM superpower is to be able to file bulk quiet action title. So we're doing a batch mail out list to all of the property owners assigned to those those properties we're pursuing. You go to court on one day and just knock out all of those cases in one day. And so there's less costs court costs associated with that. And that's what usually drives the cost for a lot of these cases is convincing, going back and forth and convincing the court that you have done your due diligence. So we, we, we talked a minute ago about how, um, about we talked about how nonprofits can sort of deposit property into our land bank. And then, but also how BAM um, has the ability to, because we have a community development mission to uh, not necessarily make properties available to the highest bidder, but to what we think is the most appropriate use that meets community needs. But I mean, in some places, um, you know, local government, of course, local government, city and county actually owns a lot of, of this property, especially lots, but also vacant and abandoned property. Will eventually they deposit some of that into BAM if we if BAM wants it? So we are actually having those conversations right now. We are working with Shelby County to collaborate with helping to um, free up a lot of those properties that have been just stuck um, in the process in the system. So ideally, we would love to, um, but uh, nothing is solid on that yet. So um, just, I guess, to kind of to wrap up, um, so what are some ways that, give us a couple of specific examples 
of, of project spams working on now, maybe some partnerships we've got with other nonprofits. Um, so people, I think we've been talking a lot about things that are a little conceptual. So what are some things we're doing? Bam is, I say we, because I'm on the board of directors. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. So I'm have, a, you know, a, a lot of interest in this. Um, so what are some of the ways that uh, BAM is working with other entities now to sort of move the needle? So one of the things I feel like is important, especially for land bank authorities um, that your listeners should know is that BAM just doesn't go into neighborhoods. We are invited into neighborhoods. And so we work a lot with the, the gatekeepers, um, the, the nonprofit CDCs, the neighborhood associations, and we work with them with their um, their plans, their issues, their wide issues to be able to do something with that. And, and so a real project that we're working on, there was an Aussie ball area where we are working with the local association and CDC. They helped us to identify some problem properties. Um, those did have squatter um, and a lot of tire dumping. We were able to leverage funds from the state um, and save the city from demolishing those properties to knock down those properties. And we're trying to work together um, with that community to see if we can um, support um, their food and security issues by um, working towards having a community garden in those lots instead. And so that's just one example of that. We've been working with nonprofits and CDCs outside of um, land deposits. Okay, that's a, that's a great example. So Alsi Ball is going to, um, does BAM own that property now or does, did we transfer it back? So we're holding it for Alsi Ball until they have redevelopment plans. Is that right? So right now we use the state's um, funds for those programs, uh, those properties to be demolished. And so there's a waiting period before we can do something with that. Um, and so we are looking for creative ways to work with the community to see if we can, you know, still uh, like work towards having a community garden, um, but allowing BAM to hold it. So that means, you know, less property taxes that they would have to pay for. So a lot of the BAM's superpowers we just talked about were made possible because of some state legislation that's been passed over the last year or so. And I don't want to get into that too much, but are there things, more powers that you would like BAM to have that were, you're working to get from, um, from the state? Yes, this is definitely a news interview. Uh <laughs> There are a lot of things that BAM would need. Uh, first and foremost, um, we would like to secure um, financial, um, uh, we want to secure finances to support land banks' operations. Um, land banks are one of the, you know, not necessarily funded appropriately based on their charge. We have a public charge of an entire city, but we, you know, it's not necessarily guaranteed funding um, that, you know, the state supports. So we have this legislation, but not a lot of resources to act on it. So, you know, funding for operations is one thing. Um, you, we've got, you know, other cities where there are shared insurance plans. I don't know what that looks like, you know, for the state of Tennessee, but I think, you know, I've gone to a couple of properties while on the job and found myself in the middle of shootouts and just having that type of protect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot to tell you, board member. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a lot of danger. It's a lot of danger. Um, and we don't have a lot of resources. And so it's more you've got passionate individuals like myself and the other people that are running that are that is what have what what has us in those jobs that what has us working really hard and in trying to defeat the odds so having more resources from the state having more you know secured um resources from the city government is one thing that them would love to have um and i'm sure other authorities across the country are currently working to see. Um, having more projects or grants that comes down from the federal government and the state that allows land banks um, activities 
to be permissible underneath um, a lot of the, the the way that some of these grants are currently not. So, you know, there are there is an, a growing effort on a national level to see if there can be some considerations as they write future um, grants like that. Um, having an, a funding source for demolitions um, that's not necessarily as restrictive to addressing the root issue. So there are, you know, there's, there's, there are different communities and there are different needs and across the state that looks different. Um, we have a lot of blight, a lot of abandonment for a long period of time and having funds that, you know, allows us to knock down that property saves us in the state and the city funds, but having to maintain the properties to a, a degree that is not necessarily realistic for having been abandoned um, in a long period of time is not necessarily realistic. So having you know un funds available to us that doesn't restrict us and makes us put more money than the land is worth um, is good. Okay, well, that's a, a big wish list and I wish it all to come true. So, well, that's all the time we have, but this has been a, a really interesting discussion, and um, I appreciate you coming on, Mep I mean, of course, Memphis Metropolis is about the built environment, and I feel like so many of the projects that we talk about, you know, affordable housing and historic preservation, a lot of those have a blight component, start out with a, as a blighted condition, so it's, this works very relevant um, to a lot of the conversation. So, thanks for coming on. Leslie. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to the second half of Memphis Metropolis, everybody. This week, um, um, I'm happy to welcome back Austin Harrison, uh, one of our regular commentators. And Austin's a local community development consultant, also is a doctoral candidate at the University of Georgia. Georgia or is it Georgia State? Georgia State, yeah. Okay, yeah. Georgia State. Very prestigious program there. And so welcome back, Austin. Happy to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. So Austin, the, um, you know, the first half of the show, Leslie Smith, who's the executive director of Blight Authority of Memphis, otherwise known as BAM, was my guest, talking a little bit about that organization and the important role it plays in helping to eradicate blight in Memphis. And I know that you know, you're very familiar with BAM. In fact, we were discussing before we started recording the that uh, you reminded me that your BAM is doing a strategic plan right now, and you're involved with that as a local, um, you know, researcher and among other roles. Uh, but but since you're, and I'm only going to call you a blight nerd because you <laughs> you told me you were one, so. I know you don't see, I, I happen to agree with that, but I wouldn't, I would ha, that's something I would call you behind your back, <laughs> not to your face, but, I love it. no, I love it. it's great. but, um, right. so I thought we could, um, you know, go a little high level, but, the, but on, at the same time, drill down a little more into the issue of blight in Memphis. And I think you, you, um, I mean, let's let's start out by talking about, and Leslie and I talked a little bit about this. Let's start about talking about some of the impacts of blight that you have been able to quantify and also observed during your time working in this field. Yeah, yeah, and and let me too uh, another kind of follow up to the conversation, the first half of this conversation you and Leslie had uh, around defining what we're talking about. I think you did a great job, Emily, of saying you know you know it when you see it. A lot of people know it when we see it, um, but blight I find is is a term like others in the urban space that uh, it's it is wide reaching, right? And it can be describing everything from 
cracked sidewalks to, you know, to high grass, to dumping, to, you know, structural issues on a property. Um, and so I, I want to make sure that when we talk about the impacts of surrounding properties, uh, a lot of the research specifies that specifically to structural sort of, I, I like to say property blight. I think if you put a, if you know, we're talking about a specific thing and we're not talking about a neighborhood or, or, or a group of people who live in a neighborhood, but it's like a specific property, um, you know, that, that uh, with property blight specifically, um, the surrounding impact, uh, one, one property, right? So one vacant and abandoned property with boarded up windows, busted out windows, high grass, that has been shown um, through research to impact surrounding property values by $7,500. And that's one property. And that $7,500 decreases the value of those surrounding properties and leads to a lot of the issues we see uh, that you and Leslie touched on around appraisal gaps and in a lot of neighborhoods with concentrated hyper vacancy and, and a lot of abandoned and derelict structures that makes it difficult, even if you put in the work and put in the effort to take that specific house that was bringing down the surrounding values and, and turn it around, you're still going to potentially be, you know, 20,000, 30,000, you put 80, 90 grand now construction costs going as high as they are, you know, you could spend as much as a hundred thousand dollars on a three bed, two bath to get it to a livable place. And that's, and it's going to be worth 60, right. Or 70, you know? And, and so I think, I think that specifically, the economic impacts and the property value impacts um, really create a systemic issue and in, in particularly uh, black and brown neighborhoods and communities of color as well. Well, and Leslie mentioned that not only does that affect the, you know, individual property owners that are adjacent, but also has an impact on property taxes. Um, and when you have a lot of blighted properties uh, in a city like we do in Memphis, that's a big hit on the property tax coffers, especially since that's the primary source of um, a lot of our city's budget. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, uh, we being, you know, Innovate Memphis and others who work on the Memphis Property Hub have looked into sort of trying to quantify just that number, right? Just number of unpaid property taxes to the city alone. And uh, last time we checked with 2020 uh, City of Memphis Treasury data, it was almost $65 million in, in unpaid property taxes across, um, you know, almost, uh, you know, 20 or 30,000 different properties. I think at least 11 or 12,000 of those properties were five years or more delinquent. So those are kind of what we call tax dead. It's likely that the back taxes of that property are worth more than the property itself, especially if it's a vacant lot. Um, but it's, it's a really big problem. And I think especially as we're entering in uh, to this, you know, this COVID and post-COVID world where, uh, municipal finances are even tighter and budgets are getting tighter and the pandemic is having some impact, uh, you know, on, on local municipal finances. Um, it, you know, creates a situation where uh, not only is that or those, those dollars, you know, owed to the city and, and part of the revenue sources, but it also makes it hard for those properties to kind of uh, come back as well. And, and sort of what, I, what you will hear me refer to probably throughout this conversation as the revitalization system, right? That's a key cog in our ability to unlock those properties and sort of as like the backstop of real estate, create community ownership and, and really um, use the community as a tool to drive forward that change. We've seen a lot of neighborhood revitalization over the last, several, even with the pandemic, the mm. last several years, we've seen some revitalization in neighborhoods like Binghamton, um, neighborhoods close to Crosstown. Those are just a couple of examples. And you know, there's concerns, people are concerned about displacement in some of those areas. And that's probably another conversation. But have those been, uh, those revitalization efforts been accompanied by a reduction in blight in those areas? It's tough because, you know, I think in those situations, the market is really, um, is really playing its role, right? And there are a lot of folks out there that, um, where I, I think especially in those neighborhoods uh, that are kind of, you know, edge neighborhoods that were really close or adjacent to, um, you know, uh, already appreciating markets. So kind of, you know, my neck of the woods, I live really close to Crosstown. And up until the pandemic, the market was largely on the other side of the interstate, right, right close to Crosstown. And then as you jump the interstate coming into the Speedway Galloway neighborhood and North Park, North Parkway Forest area, um, you immediately, I think in a lot of situations when the market comes back, 
the actors, especially your first investors and the and the first people to kind of make that jump and to pour money into those areas that haven't seen investment in the better part of a century in some cases, they're going to go for the, the easy stuff, right? They're going to go for the things that don't need a lot of work, things that haven't been vacant for 10, 15 years that um, are accessible and, you know, aren't tax dead. So kind of these, um, these locked up properties, these properties that are hard to disentangle, the market won't really fully take care of those, right? I mean, because it's, it's onerous, it doesn't make financial sense. You know, you're still, if it's, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you and I, you and I talked about, you know, a vacant church, right? Or like a vacant school or like large vacant properties, but also just, you know, single family homes that uh, have been vacant for 10, 15 years. And a lot of the systems and the wiring has been stripped and, and it's, I mean, it's going to be expensive. And, and even if the market is, you know, selling for 150, 200,000, that's still a significant investment on the front end um, to get there. And, and some folks won't be willing to do that. And so I think, uh, I believe it's a little bit, when you look at the data, it's a little bit of a misconception that the market will take care of all of those. Cause I still think even in a Binghampton, even in a medical district, uh, the role of, of a land bank and an active land bank could even be to, to complement the market in a way where the community still has a, a way to own some of that property. Because when it gets more expensive, it's going to be even harder to acquire property. And so in the situation where you can take those hard ones that the market doesn't want to touch and use those to build community ownership, that could be a potential way that uh, land banks and other cities have been used uh, to help, you know, uh, tools, anti-displacement tools like the land trust, you know, the community land trust. I know you've spoken with uh, with that crew on Memphis Metropolis before. And uh, and I think in this situation, um, that that's another opportunity uh, for for BAM to, to play a role in, in those kind of appreciated markets. So I'd like to get your take on one of the questions that Leslie and I talked about, um, which is some of the barriers. You know, I'll pose my, you know, the scenario I posed to Leslie. You know, you live in East Memphis. You have visitors from out of town. You're driving to the Stax Museum because it's so great. You're driving through South Memphis and you're just seeing, and of course, I'm just picking on South Memphis here because it has an important cultural institution. Um, and so it's a neighborhood people might conceivably drive through. And um, you see, just seeing a lot of blighted properties. And, um, and you know, how come um, nothing is being done about those? And Leslie and I did talk about some of the, I mean, particularly the back taxes, the, the difficulty in, um, in, you know, finding the owners and getting control. But I mean, if, if you want to elaborate on either of those, great, but also what else? Yeah, I think both of those, I would sort of call them symptoms, but not the disease, right? I mean, I, I think, and, and I, I would say more broadly, I'm going to get kind of big picture here. So I hope the listeners are okay with me flying, flying up the plane a little, but uh, I think at a 30,000 foot view, what really is, you know, what, what the root cause of the cause, right? So why abandoned properties? Why tax dead? Why is it hard for owners? And we have to talk about the role, um, you know, racism plays in capitalism and especially in the way that our country has decided to commodify um, properties and, and the commodification of real estate and how that has since, you know, going back to the 40s and 50s, you know, the redlining maps, but not only just redlining, but also Federal Housing Administration, right, basically giving an exit ramp to white families to push them out of Memphis. And so our property tax dollars you know, left with them and they did not invest in the predominantly now black and brown neighborhoods that um, that people of color, you know, bought into those after they left. Um, so you think of Whitehaven, you think of Raleigh, you know, these are stable homeowner neighborhoods. But even there, you know, I think because of Memphis, especially being a predominantly black city, we, we have a high a high rate of of just systemically disinvested communities that haven't seen capital improvement dollars that haven't seen private market investment, that haven't seen mortgages originated, that haven't seen businesses created, right? I think that's the that's the disease. And, and abandoned properties are an aspect of that. And they are sort of a symptom of that. But the reason, you know, it's hard to find owners is because those LLCs are the only ones that make sense to invest. Home ownership, when, you know, when a, when a, a mortgage for a home is, you know, thirty forty thousand dollars $40,000, you know, it's going to be hard to get a financial institution to give you that mortgage, right? And so, you know, the works and others have created some uh, creative solutions to 
provide those mortgage products, but home ownership still without an appreciating asset, it isn't a, a wealth building strategy in a lot of these communities. And so the only people who can extract wealth from these are these out of town LLC owners. And so I think that's, you know, that's just one aspect. And then the tax dead piece speaks to um, the, the, the ability to invest in that and to want to own that. And then you have the problem of air property as well. That again is another symptom, right? That that a lot of times the next of kin own, own the property and they may live in a Florida or a New York or an Atlanta and not even know it's in their family. Um, so all of these, I would categorize kind of all of these as um, the cause of that cause. I think we have to go back to sort of systemic racism and how it's played out in our neighborhoods. Well, I can agree a thousand percent, but I, I but also I feel like if um, if you are someone who lives next door to a blighted house and um and you you're probably you know in a lot of the neighborhoods you're probably you're probably african-american and so you know that story um you want the house you want that house next door fixed up and then as a community we drive around we see we see blight we want it fixed um and um and so not to diminish at all what you have said, because I agree a thousand percent, but um, but that's the situation we need to, and, and, and those two things are connected for sure. Fit, reforming those systems yeah. can be a tool in, right. um, in eradicating the blight, but there's still a lot of tactical barriers. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and I think especially, could not agree more. And I, I just think when we talk about the why, Right. When we talk about why are these situations there, tactical barriers, you know, again, are a part of that larger system. But to your point, I mean, I think uh, every every aspect of this right has uh, has a has a call for communities to get engaged, to to be active and to organize in their neighborhood at that level to to push for that investment, to push for those systems to work for the community, by the community. Um, And I think, you know, again, just taking every aspect of it right from the tax delinquent properties to the code issues, code complaints, that problem next door. I want to get, you know, code enforcement on it, maybe get that uh, owner in, in uh, Neighborhood Preservation Act cases, right? We want to see those solutions. And I think um, a through line in all of this is sort of the role of, of community partners and those grassroots partners that are that are critical and um, and really, you know, calling for and forcing the the systems to work for these communities in ways that benefit the folks who are living there today. Okay, um, I'm ringing the jargon bell. So, okay, all right. So, so we may have talked about the Neighborhood Preservation Act before, yeah. but um, but just remind everyone what that is because um, outside of the community development world, I don't know if people are that familiar with it, and it's actually a tool that anybody can use i mean it's not free uh but it's a tool that anyone can use you know a neighbor association an individual property owner to help deal with blight in their community so just give us the um the plain language um synopsis of what neighborhood preservation act is all right and and emily as i'm explaining this if i get jargony just get just have the bell ready all right i'm gonna gonna try and and break this down for Clear as possible, but uh, but just know that I, I, I might I might not. So um, well, do, but yes. do you want me to? I can explain it if you want, and then you can tell me <laughs> if I'm right. <laughs> well, let, yeah, let, let, let me give it a shot, and then and then we'll 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 go from there. So um, so it's a state act. So this was an act that was passed in the early 2000s in the state legislature that essentially empowered uh, any entity, so a neighborhood association, um, 501c3 community-based organization, anyone who was living in a neighborhood that was impacted by abandonment, um, they could take the property owner of the abandoned property to environmental court. Um, So environmental court is also a Shelby County innovation, a state innovation that would create the Neighborhood Preservation Act, which would be um, enough, would give stance and would give you the ability, um, standing, legal standing to bring forward uh, the, the property owner and use the court as a litigative process to ensure that that property is made habitable. So in this, the goal of the Neighborhood Preservation Act is to, as it's a tool to encourage the current property owner to make it habitable. In the case that they don't, there are various actions that the court can take. And again, this is really important that the court is deciding these problems. And so when, once the, once 
a code enforcement, right? A property next door, your neighborhood association files a code enforcement complaint. The city of Memphis itself has a partnership with the University of Memphis Law School. And that's how most MPA cases are litigated. The plaintiff is going to be the, the legal clinic, the law school clinic in the city. And they take as many as 800 um, to 1,000 properties at a time in this case and work those through the court process. This can be lengthy and this can this can be a long process, but I think it's one of our strongest tools in terms of finding the owner. A lot of times owners are out of town and a lot of times they won't talk to the city until there is a subpoena, until there is um, a, a lawsuit filed. And then that gets them and their representatives to come to Memphis and to talk and to see what's going on because so many of these owners of these properties are out of town. Um, and then, and then the second thing is outside of the city of Memphis, to Emily's point there, you are able, any neighborhood association with access to legal counsel can bring forward, um, a, a neighborhood preservation act case outside of the city's kind of docket and can, and can do that, uh, with the standing. But again, that requires, uh, access to a lawyer, which, uh, can, can be, as we all know, pretty expensive. So, so it, I, I think it's it's a really great tool, but like a lot of our great tools, access and getting it to be proactive and, and community driven is, is really the name of the game. So. so can I summarize your summary? Please do. So the Neighborhood Preservation Act allows property owners to sue the owners of blighted property if it's having an impact on the value of their property. In the in the case you talked about earlier, you have a blighted property next door, it's brought down your property value. You can sue that property owner and the court can either make them A, fix it up or sell it. Or if they don't do that, the court will find somebody to fix it up. Yeah, yeah. And that third process is called receivership. That's the, that's the potential term is the court would then appoint basically a middle person to, to steward the, um, the fixing up and to find a, a long-term owner through what's called a receiver's auction. Um, so they can auction off that property through that way as well. So. Okay. I'm trying to reduce jargon, not add to yeah, the process. I know, I know, I know, I know. Receivership term. And I just, you describe what it was, but I just want when people hear it. I want them to be able to. You know, of course. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Austin Harrison, and we're deep in the weeds about blight in Memphis and obstacles to fixing up blight and solutions to dealing with the problem. So Austin, I guess last question. Um, you've talked a couple of times about this sort of revitalization system. So how do you see, what's BAM's role in that um, with its current powers? And then how could BAM um, be even more impactful over time? Yeah, for me, I think the best way to think about this, and this is kind of, you know, our reality to a certain extent, is sort of the, the do nothing analysis, right? So if, if we do nothing, if we, the royal we being government, community activists, um, those advocates of the built environment and, and anti-abandonment, if, if nothing is done and we wait for what's happening in Binghampton and happening in medical district and downtown in certain areas, you know, kind of the market to take care of that, right? What continues to happen is these out-of-town owners, sort of what, what I like to call is we're missing a backstop of our real estate market, right? So, so balls that are getting past, uh, I'm sorry for those sports analogy, but for balls that are kind of getting past the catcher, right? The market, if we think of the market as a catcher, the market won't touch it, right? There, there's nothing back there to stop it. And so it, they just fly past us, right? And, and what that looks like on the ground is we have owners from California, New York, Canada, Switzerland, who are just sitting on these properties in, in the South Memphis's in the uptowns, in the North Memphises, in the new Chicago's, and they're waiting for that market to come back. They're waiting for the market to be the solution, at which point they'll cash out and you know sell it or maybe put investment into it once, once that asset's worth something. But without a, a BAM, right? A BAM, if, if they could be the backstop, if they could you know provide that, um, that support to catch the things that the market won't, when they won't, right? Then it does a few things, right? One, it allows the community to have access to ownership. So CDCs, neighborhood associations, um, community land trusts, other entities that are trying to own a property on the behalf of the neighborhood and for the good of the community can then have access to some of that um, when, you know, when the market actors will touch it and can promote 
affordable home ownership, can promote affordable renters, can uh, create neighborhood businesses, right? The sky's the limit once they have that acquisition. But as you and I have talked about before, and as a lot of folks uh, on Memphis Metropolis have talked about before, it's hard right now and it's difficult to get our hands on those properties because there's not that entity. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing from a government standpoint and from a you know, tax revenue standpoint, as we've discussed, um, there's a potential to, uh, to, to have a lot of those monies, you know, in these properties that are tax dead, we have, you know, tons of, of tax sale, um, properties that are tax delinquent as we discussed. And, and it creates a situation where those funds and those revenues are lost for the city. Right. And, um, and I think using BAM, other cities have used land banks, you know, uh, land bank authorities, um, to be that conduit and to help not only bring those property taxes back on the rolls, but do it in a way that's uh, that's intentional, that's community conscious, and isn't just you know market driven, but sort of market adjacent, and allows the community to to be stewards and and to and to bring back the redevelopment they want to see in the way they want to see it. So Austin, we've talked um, a lot over the years about all the out of town investors that um, a lot of them really came into the market after the foreclosure crisis of the 2000s and um, and bought, you know, big quantities of them. Is there any way to, to get those back? I mean, rest control of those. I mean, one of the things that happens is that a lot of times they don't go on the market. They don't go on the, they don't go on Zillow. So if yeah. you, so if there's a, if, you, if you're in, let's just say you live in, you know, your neighborhood and there's an attractive house next door um, with renters in it. And you're like, you know, I would buy that house if it came. We need a bigger house. I'd buy that house if it came on the market. Well, it could change hands and you would have no idea. Yeah. Um, and that happens in a lot of neighborhoods. And that's a barrier to home ownership, which we, you know, that's another, that's a story for another day that we've talked about. But is there any way over time to sort of, get more control, get some of that ownership back into Memphis property owners, whether it's homeowners or just local owners, period? The, the short answer is yes. Um, but I think we're talking about a real long run approach, right? So, so the business model, speaking generally about these out-of-town investors, their business model is categorized by some researchers as milking, right? So, they, so they're really making a short-term proposition. Their investment in neighborhoods like Hickory Hill, like Raleigh, like Frazier, they're, they're not thinking about a 10, 15, 20-year time horizon, right? They want a cash flow. They want things where um, they don't need to put a lot of money into it. They buy it directly from another private equity investor or from, you know, in the case of the foreclosure crisis, a bank has thousands of properties on its, you know, on its rolls that it doesn't want to be responsible for. So they'll sell 1,500, 2,000 at a time to these private equity firms. But, but it's a quick proposition. And so the reality is, the unfortunate reality is, they're going to be done with that property once it's used all of its you know, market value, once it's no longer livable, once um, the, a tenant will not be able to live in it. Um, and because there isn't sort of that backstop or that floor, right, it's, all, it's honestly going to be when it kind of goes into disrepair and that asset is no longer extractable for any sort of real estate value. And so I think in the long run with a BAM or with a, with a full functioning revitalization system, the community once again, once the market doesn't want it, once they're tired of it, that's when the community can step up and say, you know, this, we're going to bring this property back. We're going to put the money into it. We're going to, you know, create, if it's too far gone, maybe we turn that into a community garden. Maybe we turn that into a, um, a park, you know, a pocket park, what, what have you. But um, but I think on the long runway, there definitely is a, a time for the community because once the market actors don't see any, you know, market extraction available there in this sort of milking mindset, right? That's that's when the community can't. And also, I think the second thing I'd say is despite the growth, the very quick growth of out-of-town investors, um, they still don't have, you know, these larger outside institutional actors they don't have full control of the market, right? So there's still the major, just the rental market specifically, the single family rental market, still roughly three quarters of those properties are owned by what I would classify as mom and pop. So local Memphis based 
landlords who maybe own like five or 10, 15 properties, right? And so I still think there's an opportunity for an entity like BAM to play a role in, and maybe they would donate some of those properties, right? Maybe they want to see uh, a community land trust or affordable home ownership. They care about Memphis neighborhoods and so they want to see them improve. And so I think there's still, despite the growth and, and we put a lot of necessary attention to these out-of-town owners, the reality is there's still a lot of properties that's not these out-of-town owners that are local folks who do care about Memphis and want to see our neighborhood succeed. And so I think there's an opportunity for some potential partnerships there as well. Okay. That's good information. Okay, Austin. Well, thank you for coming back on the show. This is a very big subject and I'm sure we'll be revisiting Blight again. Um, that's a topic because it's just so important um, and looking at the ways to, you know, the tools for dealing with it. So I've been talking to Austin Harrison, who is a local community development consultant, one of our regular commentators on Memphis Metropolis. So thanks for coming on, Austin. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. Mm-hmm.